Paul's letter to Philemon, and as you're, you're turning there, uh, in, in 1814, a man named Ivan uh, Andrevik uh, Krylov, uh, a poet and, and fabulist, wrote a fable uh, entitled The Inquisitive Man. Uh, which tells the story of a man who goes to a museum and he makes uh, all of these great observations about small details, but he he misses uh, the elephant that was in the museum. And he never takes notice of it. Uh, and in the, this fable was later referred to by uh, Fyodor Dostoevsky in one of his novels. Uh, and the point of the fable gradually became proverbial and idiomatic. Uh, the first widely disseminated reference was uh, with a story written by Mark Twain, uh, the Stolen White Elephant, uh, which dissects these detectives that, that go around searching for uh, an elephant while it is right there at the scene uh, with them. Uh, another instance, the, the Oxford English Dictionary uh, gives the first recorded use of the phrase as a simile. In, in 1959 in the New York Times, it says that financing schools has become a, a problem about equal to having an elephant in the living room. Uh, it's so big you just can't ignore it. Uh, and now uh, this idiom of you know the elephant in the room has come to to represent something that that everybody knows about that everybody sees it and is aware of it but nobody's willing to to address it nobody wants to talk about the elephant in the room because to talk about the elephant would bring consequences uh, it may stir up conflict you know uh, everybody knows oh we can't talk about that because this is what will what will happen uh, and and even though uh, the saying did not exist in the first century. Uh, I am sure that it felt like there was an elephant in the room in the Colossian church when a runaway slave came home to his master as the church gathered together. Now imagine with me as uh, this, uh, this runaway slave named Onesimus uh, comes into the, the home of his master where the church was meeting, the, the church of Colossae, uh, and he comes with a messenger of Paul. And the elephant in the room would have been, what is he doing here? How did he get here? Why is he here with this messenger from the Apostle Paul who's come with a letter from Rome? Now imagine with me how they would have listened to the, the messenger of Paul, a man named Tychicus, uh, explain who he was. He would have introduced himself and then he would have opened up a scroll uh, and he would have read a letter from the Apostle Paul, a letter that uh, that we recently studied, the letter that we know now as Colossians. Uh, and Tychicus would have opened up that letter, and he would have read it from beginning to end to the entire church. Probably would have taken about 15 minutes to read through that. Uh, and I'm sure that as, uh, as everybody in the church was listening to uh, Tychicus read that letter, in the back of their minds, they're also thinking about, why is Onesimus here? How did he get here? What is uh, what is going on? And then at the end of Paul's letter, they would have noticed that that Paul referred to this runaway slave as a faithful and beloved brother, which kind of uh, probably would have shaken them a little bit. How can how can Paul refer to this this slave who has run away from his master, a slave who stole from his master? As he ran away, how can, how can Paul refer to this man as a, as a faithful and beloved brother in Christ? Uh, and Paul also wrote that these two men, Tychicus and Onesimus, who had come all the way from Rome, that they would fill in the, the church at Colossae and all of the events that had transpired. And I'm sure the church couldn't wait 
to hear about all that had transpired. They, they wanted to hear what's, what's going on, what would bring Onesimus, this fugitive, back to his master. And as Tychicus and Onesimus would have explained all that had transpired, they might have begun uh, with Paul's ministry in a city called Ephesus. Ephesus was the, the biggest city uh, in Asia Minor, where Colossae was also located. Ephesus is about 110 miles west, located on the coast of what is modern-day Turkey. And Paul ministered there for three years. Uh, and while he was there for three years sharing the gospel, uh, people from all over Asia were coming to hear the gospel, and then they were scattering and starting churches in Asia Minor. And one of those men who came would have been a man named Epaphras, uh, who was the founder of the church at Colossae. He was the, the church planter, so to speak. Uh, he would have come, heard from Paul, uh, and another man from Colossae would have also been there, a man named Philemon. Uh, and Philemon, uh, what we know from this letter, is that Philemon came to Christ through the ministry of Paul. It was Paul's proclamation of the gospel that uh, was how uh, Philemon came into a saving relationship with Jesus. And Philemon probably returned with Epaphras to their hometown of Colossae uh, and started that church together. And that church gathered in Philemon's home. And uh, during that same time, Paul continued on his journey. So he eventually went back to Jerusalem and then uh, was falsely accused and imprisoned uh, for several years. And then he would have made his appeal to Caesar where he gets to go to Rome. Uh, so he would have gone to Rome and been there for uh, multiple years. And while Paul was there proclaiming the gospel in Rome, uh, he was under house arrest. And he was proclaiming a simple message that, uh, that all people need to place their faith in Christ for salvation. Uh, or if you don't do that, then you would face the wrath of God for the, as a penalty for our sins. A simple message. Uh, and as Paul's proclaiming this message, people are coming to him as he's under house arrest. Uh, and many people come and they hear and they, they scoff and reject what Paul has been saying. And we see that in Acts 28. That there were some Jews who came and heard. Uh, they scoffed and rejected. But there were others who came and heard Paul's message and they believed. Uh, they came to, uh, to faith in Christ. They placed their, their trust in Christ alone, not in themselves. And among those who would have came to Paul uh, at some point when he was there in Rome was this man named Onesimus. Uh, and Onesimus placed his faith in Jesus. Uh, and it's amazing that in, in the providence of God, this Onesimus uh, was uh, the one who came to faith under Paul's ministry, uh, and his master that he ran away from was also known by Paul. What a coincidence, right? Uh, that this person uh, that Paul had won to Christ in Ephesus, Philemon, would have a runaway slave, and Paul just encounters that slave uh, a thousand miles away from where he uh, lived in Colossae in Rome. What a coincidence. Uh, but this is the providence of God that Onesimus would, would encounter Paul and come to faith. And, and then Onesimus not only came to faith, but he began to serve alongside Paul in ministry there in Rome. I don't know for, for how long, uh, but he, he was there and he was discipled by Paul uh, of what it looked like to follow Jesus. Now, now you, you believe, now this is how you walk and follow him. Uh, and he was there for a time. And then Somebody else comes to Rome. Epaphras, the church planter from Colossae, comes to, to Rome and he's in great distress. He says, hey, Paul, there's this false teaching that's, that's taking place in, in the church. People are beginning to, to be influenced by it. And Epaphras is like, what do I do? 
Uh, and that prompts Paul to write the letter to the Colossians. And then he also says, hey, you know what? Onesimus needs to, needs to go back to his master Philemon, and they need to reconcile now because they are brothers in Christ. Still slave and, and master, but they are now brothers in Christ, and, and they need to be reconciled. So this is the perfect opportunity, as Paul is going to send this letter to the Colossians back with, with Tychicus, that he's going to send Onesimus with him to the church that he left, to the master that he abandoned and stole from. And so Tychicus and Onesimus carry this letter that Paul also wrote to Philemon, interceding for Onesimus. He's going to write this letter to to the church. So you imagine uh, Onesimus and Tychicus, they, they come to the church as they're gathered together. They read through Colossians. They, they fill in the details of what has transpired, of how Onesimus has come into contact with Paul and now how he is back there in Colossae. And then Tychicus would have pulled out this second letter and read it to the church. And I, I want to read it in its entirety. It's just 25 verses. But as we read it, imagine with me that we are there, that we are this church in Colossae. And imagine that the, as this drama unfolds, we see Philemon probably standing up in a corner over there. Uh, and this letter is going to be addressed to him. And imagine I'm Tychicus, the, the letter reader. And with me is Onesimus, this one who has run away from home, who's wronged his master. If there were other slaves in the home of Philemon, they would have gotten in trouble when Onesimus left because it was expected that all of the other slaves would know what each individual one is doing. So if one slave ran away, who would be punished? The other slave. So think about there. His sin has impacted them. He's stolen and run away. uh, All of these things. And then Paul writes this letter so imagine with me this drama unfolding as Tychicus unravels the scroll and reads to the church at Colossae. He would say, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred... to do nothing without your consent, 
in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. The Apostle Paul wrote persuasively there. And he had, he had gone there. He addressed the elephant in the room. This is, this is how Onesimus has come to you, and this is what I want you uh, to do in response to his return. And then after, after that letter had been read aloud, there would have been another question that would have hung in the air. What's Philemon going to do? How, how is he going to receive this slave who has sinned against him, run away, stolen? How is he going to respond? And the main point of the letter comes in, in verses 17 through 20. That's where Paul is going to make three requests of Philemon. He's going to appeal, but he makes three requests. He says, number one, receive Onesimus as you would receive me. It's in verse 17. In verse 18, he says, hey, if he has wronged you, charge it to Paul's account. That's what he's going to say. And then in verse 20, he says, refresh my heart in Christ. Those are the, the three requests that Paul makes of him. So how is he going to respond? And ultimately, I believe that Philemon responded well to Paul's appeal to him. Uh, And I I believe that he forgave Onesimus, that he reconciled with him, that he welcomed him back into his home. But why do I believe that? Well, I believe that because we still have this letter. If the letter was unsuccessful, it probably wouldn't have been passed around and copied, right? It wouldn't have been like, hey, look look at Paul's failure at reconciliation. I want you guys to read this. No, I don't think that would have been the case. I think this letter was passed around because it was successful. And I think it's passed around because it serves us now as a model of reconciliation. It serves as a model of forgiveness, of how to make an appeal, of how to exercise authority in a loving way, when to to lay that authority aside and instead to appeal to somebody on the basis of relationship. Uh, there's so much here for us to to see and study as we come to this this short letter. Uh, as you as you notice, as we read, there, there's not a a whole lot of theological terminology in this letter. Paul doesn't you know take us up with a rocket to uh, to the stratosphere to talk about the, the the depths of theological principles. Instead, we, we stay on the ground level, and this is where the rubber meets the road. That this is where uh, when conflict arises, this is where we go. 
reconciliation, forgiveness, uh, entrusting yourself to someone who has sinned against you. This is an extremely practical, everyday life letter to believers that Paul writes. And this letter, most of all, is going to deal with the concept of forgiveness between Christians. Right? That's, that's a little bit applicable. Uh, since, since sin is a common experience to all of humanity, uh, both our sin, uh, and sin against, uh, sin against others, uh, sin, others sin against us. And if others are sinning against us, there's also a need for us to do what? To forgive. To reconcile. To pursue peace. Uh, and because sin and conflict are the, the, still the common experience of all humanity, this, this letter is still important to us, even though it was written 2,000 years ago. We all need help with forgiveness, do we not? Uh, there are certain things that we naturally do when conflict arises. Right? We, we can naturally uh, be unwilling to forgive others. We, we like to, to hold a grudge, to, to remain bitter to rehearse the wrongs that have been committed against us. But those are ultimately wrong decisions and, and sinful decisions. Now John MacArthur lists four unpleasant results that accompany unforgiveness. He says, number one, unforgiveness imprisons believers in their past. That if we are not willing to forgive, we continue to, to relive the hurt of others' sins against us from the past. Uh, and they still come up uh, each and every day on a recurring basis. So unforgiveness imprisons believers in their past. Secondly, it produces bitterness. You know, when you, when you dwell on what others have done against you, how do you feel inside? You don't get warm fuzzies. Uh, it just, it, it stews and it brews within you and you just, uh, you grow more and more angry towards others. Uh, famous saying that bitterness is poison that we drink trying to kill other people. Right? We, we drink the poison trying to, why, why aren't they dying? And I keep feeling worse. Uh, that's the result of bitterness. Uh, Leviticus 19, 17 and 18. This passage ends with a, with a very famous command, but uh, the, the commands that precede it are very important as well. Leviticus says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That, that, see, even back in the Old Testament, it is understood that if you, if you hold a grudge, uh, if you remain bitter towards somebody, if you're angry in your heart, you're not doing what? You're naturally not loving them. And that's the contrast there. Don't bear a grudge, but love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, thirdly, Unforgiveness gives Satan an open door. Ephesians 4, verses 26 and 27 say, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. See, unforgiveness provides Satan and his army of demons uh, an opportunity to create divisions in a church, in a home, in a relationship, in a marriage, unforgiveness gets in between people and it just becomes a greater and greater wedge that doesn't just disappear with time. That's a, that's a lie that we like to believe, right? If I just give it time, it'll go away. 
Right? That, that's, uh, that, that never works. It always comes back. And fourthly, he says that unforgiveness hinders fellowship with God. That constantly rehearsing the sins of others against uh, against you will end up hindering your own relationship with the Lord. Listen to listen to Psalm sixty six. Now, verse verse eighteen is going to be the key one, but listen to the the context. We're going to, we're going to read sixteen through twenty. Uh, the psalmist is instructing us. He says, "Come and hear all you who fear God, and I will tell you what He has done for my soul. I cried to Him with my mouth." And high praise was on my tongue. In verse 18, he said, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But truly, God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because He has not rejected my prayer or removed His steadfast love from me. The psalmist is instructing us. He says, Hey, the Lord's heard my prayer, but why has the Lord heard His prayer? Because He wasn't with holding iniquity in his heart. When we hold sin in our hearts, what does that do to our prayer life with the Lord? It it throws up stumbling blocks. It it hinders our own relationship vertically with the Lord if we have uh, conflict horizontally. This is also seen, sobering verse, husbands, 1 Peter 3, 7. It says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. And that, the idea there, you ever seen uh, big concrete roadblocks on the, on the freeway? Like the divider? Sometimes they, they put them up in, uh, along parade, parade uh, pathways and other things. There's no getting by those. Uh, and that, that's the idea. Of, that's what is thrown up in our prayer life, husbands, when we are not living with our wives uh, as fellow heirs of the grace of life. Uh, when we have sinned against others, it impacts our vertical relationship with the Lord. This is also seen in Matthew six fourteen and 15. It says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. See, Paul understood the danger of unresolved conflict uh, and unforgiveness. And he understood the danger of not addressing that elephant in the room. That's why he wrote this letter. He wasn't just going to send Onesimus back and see what happened. Let me just do an experiment here. Let me, let me, let me throw two, two Christians in conflict in a room and see, see what comes of it. No, he didn't do that. He wrote a letter writing for reconciliation. And think about this. In God thought that this was so important, this, this idea of forgiveness and reconciliation, that he dedicated an entire letter in the Bible to it. That's what Philemon is about, how to reconcile. So important. Uh, and, and as we look at this letter, we're going to see many solutions, many principles that apply to, to resolving conflict between people. Uh, and uh, and as we just look at the first three verses today, uh, we're, we're going to see some some principles. But these first three verses are uh, often ones that we can just speed past, right? It follows this common uh, way of starting a letter in the in uh, ancient Rome and in the ancient uh, Near East of hey, you you say who's writing, who are they writing to, uh, and then giving some form of a of a greeting. Uh, but because of the context, because we know uh, why Paul is writing this letter, we can we can make note of what's unique about these three verses from Paul's other letters. And we can distill three principles for peacemaking. 
so to speak. Uh, three principles that can help us to, to reconcile with others and to bring about forgiveness in our own relationship because Paul is going to model what peacemaking looks like here in this letter. Uh, so these three principles that we will see, number one uh, is the balance of authority with relationship. Okay? This is seen in, in Paul's introduction of himself. He says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus uh, and Timothy, our brother. Uh, see, Paul mentions Timothy here, probably acknowledging that, that Timothy was maybe his scribe that he was dictating to, his amanuensis. Uh, but more important than that of significance here is Paul's description of himself. Paul's usual description uh, in his letters, he introduced himself as Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Say, hey, this is, this is Paul, this is who I am, this is the authority that I carry. That's how he started his letter to the Colossians. Hey, I'm an apostle. You don't know me, but I have been chosen by God to carry out this ministry. But how does he begin this letter here? He says, no, I am Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And it's interesting. If You would expect him to say something like, I am Paul, a prisoner of Caesar. Paul, I'm a prisoner of Rome. But he says, no, I'm, I'm a prisoner of who? Of Christ. Uh, and th- there's debate on what this means because it's kind of ambiguous. It could mean that Paul is a, a prisoner for Jesus' sake or he's a prisoner because of his faith and ministry for Christ. It could mean that. Or it could mean that Paul was taken prisoner by Jesus. That he is a prisoner of Jesus and that Jesus is the one responsible for him being there. Uh, and uh, Scholars and commentators are, are torn. They say this is a very difficult uh, phrase to classify. One, one scholar says this, that it describes a general relationship between prisoner and Christ Jesus that should not be confined to any particular nuance. So Paul is in prison because he has been preaching Christ. He is in prison for the sake of Christ, and he is a prisoner who belongs to Christ. And as, as he writes this letter to to Philemon, he's going to lay aside his authority. He lays aside his title, and instead he's going to appeal to Philemon on the basis of their friendship. Right? We saw that. He said, hey, I, I, I could do this the, the one way as an apostle and just say, hey, you need to do this. But he doesn't. He says, hey, let me appeal to you as a friend. And repeatedly throughout the letter, uh, Paul is going to, to focus on the fact that he's a, a prisoner. He does all of these things to to earn sympathy. He refers to himself as a prisoner, as an old man. Uh, and repeatedly he, he, he points to that, but never to his apostolic authority. You can, you can think of it this way. Instead of coming at Philemon, you know, shaking his, his, his finger and pounding his fist, hey, you need to do this. Instead of facing Philemon and correcting him and commanding him, he comes alongside him like a friend and, and puts his arm around him. And he's going to make an appeal and say, hey, Philemon, why don't you think about this? I would, I would appeal to you to make this decision. You know this is right. Think about all of these other things and then make the right decision. And that is how Paul comes and addresses Philemon in this letter. And that, that's a key principle. Pastor John Kitchen says of this, he says, sometimes we make more progress by finding common ground than by pulling rank. Sometimes that's what we need to do. For the, for the sake of peacemaking, for the sake of pursuing reconciliation, we need to lay aside some of our rights, some of our authority, and be willing just to dialogue in relationship with somebody else. 
Uh, that is sometimes appropriate. Uh, but if, if we are going to, if we are going to do that, if we're going to base an appeal upon relationship rather than authority, what does that mean that we have to have with somebody? Relationship. Uh, it, it's difficult to, to make an appeal based upon a relationship if you don't have one. Which is really key for, for us as anybody who exercises authority. Uh, as a boss, uh, as a parent, uh, as uh, a pastor. That if you truly want to be able to at times lay aside your authority, you have to have relationship with the person that you're speaking to, that you are appealing to. Uh, so it's of vital importance that we, that we don't just exercise a, a, a relationless authority, but that we focus on loving people. That, that we get to know them, that we genuinely care for them. Because if we, if we don't do that, what's the only, what's the only thing that we have? Is authority, but but authority is something that is acknowledged by others, uh, and respect isn't something uh, that is just demanded and given. Respect is something that's earned over time, right? You don't just say, "Hey, respect me," and then everybody immediately respects you. No, trust uh, and respect are are earned over relationship, uh, and that is what Paul is basing his appeal on here. Uh, there is a time where we need to balance authority with relationship. And that is the first principle that we can distill from this greeting. Uh, and the second is, is similar. The second principle is that, that we should be accountable to others in the church. Look with me at uh, these next uh, few words. So Paul introduces himself as the author, and then he's going to identify the recipients that he's writing to. And he's going to kind of point to four recipients. He says, hey, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and and." Because Philemon is mentioned first, he is the primary recipient of this letter. Philemon was a, was a wealthy man, had a house large enough for the church to gather together uh, as a whole, uh, and he would have been one of the leaders in the church. Uh, and then in verse 2, Paul also addresses this to a woman named Apphia, whom he identifies as our sister. And that is more than likely Philemon's wife. Uh, and uh, he mentions her because, hey, this... This reconciliation also involves her. Because uh, Onesimus, when he ran away and stole, who did he also steal from? The wife of his master. The, the, the husband and wife go, go hand in hand. They are one flesh. So Paul also addresses the letter to her. And then he says to Archippus, our fellow soldier. And Archippus uh, is also mentioned in Colossians 4.17. Uh, Archippus was probably the son of Philemon and Apphia, and he was probably the, the pastor in while Epaphras was away in Rome. He was probably the spiritual leader of the church. Uh, and so as, as the pastor, as the leader, he also needs to, uh, to hear this. Uh, and then uh, at the end of verse 2, Paul also says, and the church in your house. Uh, Paul also addresses this to the church. So this is intended to be a personal letter, but it's not a private letter. Okay, Paul, Paul is giving this, these instructions and making this appeal to Philemon, but he wants others to know about the appeal. He wants others to hear it and, in essence, to hold Philemon and Apphia and Archippus accountable for what, they, what Paul is encouraging them to do, what he, how he is appealing uh, to them. And again, imagine this as we're here in, uh, in this room with the, with the Colossian church. The, the letter's just been written. 
Uh, and now there's, uh, as soon as Paul brings uh, the church and he says, hey, this is to you also, he, he immediately makes the entire church accountability partners uh, with uh, Philemon and Apphia and Archippus. And Archippus, as the pastor, what does he in essence have to do? He in essence has to hold his father accountable to what the apostle's saying. Awkward situation, right? Uh, to, to have to exercise authority over your father uh, and to hold him accountable. Uh, but as soon as, as soon as Paul does this, he's bringing in the entire church as accountability. And this is the very same thing that he did in Colossians 4.17 when he, when he had, uh, mentions Archippus. He says, hey, church, say to Archippus, fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. That the whole church is to, to hold their, their pastoral leader accountable to the ministry that he has received. And now uh, that pastor is called to uh, hold his flock accountable as well. And the whole church is to be the accountability for each individual believer. And accountability is a powerful motivator, especially when it is the entire church. And that is what Paul does here. He makes his appeal on behalf of Onesimus. Uh, and he's he's going to to, again, exert the best kind of peer pressure. Uh, and uh, I love at the, at, did you catch what Paul did at the end of the letter in verse 22? Or 21, he says, Hey, I'm confident of your obedience. I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. And then verse 22, by the way, I'll be coming through <laughs> uh, just, to, just to check on you, uh, just to make sure you've, you've done what I have encouraged you to do. That is what he does. He provides accountability for what he is asking of Philemon. Now, and this is so, so important. Hebrews 3, verses 12 and 13. The author of Hebrews says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, day, uh, another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. That's a, that's a call there in that letter, that what should we be doing with one another? That we should be admonishing, encouraging one another to continue to pursue Christ, because sin is deceitful. It's trying to lead us astray, but the consequences are grave. And we are to call and encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today. As long as it's called today, we should be encouraging one another. And that is that, that mutual accountability of the church. So, so just practically speaking, how does that take place on a Sunday morning? It, it, it can happen in little bits and pieces in private conversations, but not to the full extent that it needs to, uh, which is why we, we are so passionate about our, our growth groups here at Ambassador, because that's so important for you to be able to, to come alongside other people, to have them pray for you, to have them ask the tough questions, to have them address the elephant in your house, Say, hey, I, I saw that elephant. Do you know it's there? <laughs> are you willing to talk about that? Uh, how are we going to get that out of your living room? That's going to make a mess, but it needs to come out. Uh, that happens not here when we're co- corporately gathered together, worshiping, singing, uh, studying God's Word, but it also happens more importantly in a focused manner when we gather together in smaller groups where we can pray for and encourage one another. Accountability is so important, and that's what Paul provides here. He says, hey, the entire church, this is a personal letter to Philemon, but all of you need to know what I'm asking him to do so that you can hear and hold him accountable. That's the second principle that we need to 
to apply when we are in conflict with others. But oftentimes we have a tendency to do what? When there's conflict in our lives, there's two things that we can do. We can, number one, we can pretend that it's not there. We can hide it from others. Uh, and if we do that, what are, what's missing? We don't have help and we don't have accountability. The other tendency that we do when there's conflict in our lives, uh, we like to go and whisper it to others, meaning that we do it in a, in a slanderous way. We, we go and tell others, hey, I have conflict with that person over there, but don't say anything. But what have I just done? I, I've just slandered that person over here. And that person, they've just heard one side of the story, my side. And now I've created conflict not only between myself and that person because I've slandered them, but now I've brought this other person into the loop. And I've slandered this this person uh, to this person. And now their view has changed. Uh, and uh, But as soon as we bring somebody else in, we bring them into accountability. As soon as we, we go and tell somebody else about a conflict, how we should respond is, all right, let me help you resolve that. Let's go pursue reconciliation. No, you can, I, I can't just not do anything about that. We need to pursue peace. We need to pursue forgiveness. And, and that's how we should address things in the church. But all too often, we allow those whisperings to go on. Uh, and strife just continues to build. Uh, but what is addressed here by, by making it public, uh, there's no way for whisperings to, to be made. Uh, it can be addressed biblically within the entire church. Uh, and the, this accountability is necessary for, uh, for obedience to be followed through with. Uh, then Paul leads into this third principle, or this third principle that we can distill out of this, that we should begin appeals with gospel truth. So in verse 3, Paul makes this customary greeting. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, this is, you know, grace is the means of salvation and, and peace is the result of salvation. Uh, and and this, this greeting is also, I guess you could say, theologically significant because it, it, it couples God the Father with Jesus Christ uh, as the singular source of grace and peace. Uh, and if you're going to say that, that God and Jesus are the source of grace, what is that implying? That's implying that Jesus is God. Because if I say another human being, that God and this human uh, are the source of grace, that's blasphemous, Right? That elevates this human to the, to the level of deity. Uh, and here we have just a, a, an implied, uh, uh, I guess, reference to the deity of Christ. Uh, um, and, and even though this, this greeting is very familiar to us, uh, it's very simple. You know, Paul begins uh, all of his letters this way. Uh, and eight of, his let, eight of his 13 letters have this exact uh, phrase. Uh, it, it's, it's possible for us just to speed past. Have you ever done that? No, when you're, you can drive down a street multiple times and, uh, and not really, uh, see your surroundings. You don't notice the businesses that are there or the landmarks. And you don't notice it until what? Until somebody else is like, oh yeah, that business that's right there. You're like, there's, that store's right there. I, I drove past it every day. I never notice. Uh, sometimes that can happen with things that are too familiar. Uh, and, and this little phrase uh, of grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Oftentimes it's something that we, that we rush past thinking that it doesn't have any significance. But what is grace? Grace is the undeserved favor of God that He bestows upon us. Right? We don't deserve it, but He, but He extends it to us. And peace. 
Peace is the result of Him extending that grace. Peace is the rest that we now have in Christ because God has extended grace. Because we've been reconciled to God. Romans 5, 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When, when there is conflict, and as you are writing to people or, or trying to resolve conflict, wouldn't it be great to begin with these two, grace and peace, as a reminder of the gospel, as a reminder of what you want to call these people to? Because when there's conflict, shouldn't we extend grace to others rather than demanding certain uh, list of uh, you know, terrorist negotiations? I want this, I want this, I want this. No, we need to come willing to, to extend grace and pursue peace. And so how would that transform our, our conversations? Have you ever had that, that conversation after you've had an argument? You say, okay, how do, how do we make things right? If we came with the goal of extending grace rather than uh, making demands, and if we came with the goal of pursuing peace rather than just victory, how would that transform our conversations? How would that transform our peacemaking? See, grace and peace are the beginning and the end of the gospel, and they should be the beginning and the end of our forgiveness and reconciliation. That is where we should begin. So we can't just speed past that. Uh, and I would recommend, hey, next time you, you have had a conflict and you are, you're coming back together with that person to try and make peace, begin with this. Just pray, Lord, help us to extend grace to one another right now and help us both to pursue peace. Help us to be willing to at times lay aside our rights as we saw the Apostle Paul do here. Help us to be willing to lay aside whatever authority, whatever we, we think we deserve. Help us to lay that aside so that we are willing to pursue peace in this situation. That is the third principle that we can uh, distill from Paul's simple greeting here uh, to Philemon, uh, to his household and to to the entire church. Uh, and and as we step back, and we read through the entire letter, and we're going to take four more weeks to continue our study of it, but uh, there's, there, there's so much here for us to pull away. There's going to be so many practical uh, and applicable principles for, for making peace. For how, do we, how do we forgive others? What should motivate me to forgive others? Now, how, how do I go about uh, helping others to reconcile? How do I exercise authority? How do I submit to authority? Because Paul's going to demonstrate an amazing submission to authority in sending a slave back to his master. Hey, this is what is right and appropriate. We'll, we'll talk about that. But there's going to be, there's going to be so much to learn. But most importantly about, about forgiveness. See, forgiveness, you could, you could say that the entire Bible is about forgiveness and reconciliation. How God is going about forgiving and reconciling sinful man to himself. One, one Bible scholar has identified 75 word pictures about forgiveness in the Bible. God's given us 75 word pictures to help us understand what forgiveness looks like. Here, here's just 10 of them that show us the, the nature, importance, and the effects of forgiveness. So that to forgive is to turn the key, to open the cell door, and let the prisoner walk free. To forgive is to write in large letters across a debt, paid in full. To forgive is to pound the gavel in a courtroom and to declare not guilty. To forgive is to shoot an arrow so high and so far 
that it can never be found again. To forgive is to bundle up all the garbage and trash and dispose of it, leaving the house clean and fresh. To forgive is to loose the moorings of a ship and release it to the open sea. To forgive is to grant a full pardon to a condemned criminal. To forgive is to relax a stranglehold on a wrestling opponent. To forgive is to sandblast a wall of graffiti, leaving it looking like new. To forgive is to smash a clay pot into a thousand pieces so it can never be pieced back together again. See, all of these are our descriptions of, of the forgiveness that we have if we have believed in Christ Jesus. If we have placed our faith in Christ, we have that type of forgiveness between ourselves and our Creator. He doesn't have our forgiveness. We have His. He has forgiven us. He's, he's cast our sins as far as the east is from the west. He chooses to no longer count them against us. These are the pictures of forgiveness in Scripture. And, and some of you may be here today saying, I don't know that forgiveness. I've never experienced that type of relationship and that type of forgiveness with God. And if you haven't experienced that with God, there's no way that you're going to be willing to extend that to others. And, and we can't extend to others what we haven't experienced. One, one pastor has also said that we are most like God when we extend forgiveness. That we are most a, like a reflection of Him when we extend forgiveness to others. Some of you may be here and you have been struggling to forgive others that you have been holding on to bitterness and resentment in your hearts, rehearsing those sins against you. Uh, and you want to be free from that. You're tired of drinking that poison, trying to, trying to hurt others. You're, you're destroying yourself. It takes a toll on your heart. It takes a toll on your soul. And I want to say there is hope. There is peace that can be found relationally by looking first and foremost to Christ, by understanding how you have been forgiven and then growing in your willingness to extend that forgiveness to others. If you, if you turn backwards to Colossians chapter 3, you're going to see that, that what, what the Colossians had already heard that morning, even before Paul uh, spoke in his letter to Philemon. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 12, Paul said this. And again, this was, this was read to the entire church. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. And then what's the basis? What's the reason? What's the motivation? What's the model of forgiveness? As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Paul already called the church to that standard, and now he's saying, Philemon, this is what you need to do. This is how you need to direct that forgiveness towards Onesimus. And this is, this is what we need to, to hear, to understand, and to embrace ourselves that we are to be forgiving people as we have been forgiven. What God has done to us, now He wants to do through us. He now wants to work through us that we might be ministers of reconciliation, that we might be ambassadors for Christ. 
That, that is the ministry that he has called us to now, but it has to begin first and foremost with our faith in Christ, bringing reconciliation between us and God, and then us being willing to extend forgiveness and reconciliation to others on the basis of what Christ has done for us. That's going to be the basis of Paul's appeal here, and that must be the basis of all of our forgiveness in our relationships. And that's what we will continue to look at in the coming weeks. I'm excited uh, just to look at this letter. That's going to be important. It's going to be uh, heart-wrenching at times. Uh, It's going to meddle. That's going to call you to do things that you may be uncomfortable doing. Uh, But it's going to apply gospel truth to our lives. And I'm looking forward to doing that with you. Let's pray. Gracious and forgiving God, we come to you praising and thanking you, worshiping you, because you have extended mercy to us, because you have extended grace to us. Lord, you have withheld what we deserve and you have given us what we do not deserve. And Lord, the end result of your grace, the end result of your mercy is that we have peace with you. Lord, it may not always feel that way. And Lord, even though we have peace with you, we oftentimes still struggle to have peace in our earthly relationships. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand the greatness of your forgiveness of us, Lord, that it would impress upon our hearts the greatness of your love and mercy and that we would in turn be willing to turn around and extend love, mercy, forgiveness to others, that we would pursue reconciliation, that we might glorify you, that we might be pictures of your reconciling gospel to the world around us. Lord, I pray that you would Be with us as a church to maintain the unity of the body, that we would pursue reconciliation when sin occurs in our church. And Lord, we know that it will because we are all sinful. And Lord, I pray for our homes, our families, our marriages. Lord, that you would help us to pursue reconciliation, to pursue forgiveness, to extend grace to one another so that we might have homes that are in harmony homes that are uh, silos of, of peace and reconciliation and that others around us might see the peace that we live with in our families, in our homes, and they might be attracted to that, that they might uh, want to hear about who you are and how you have worked in our lives because they see the results that you have brought about. Lord, may you be with us, may you strengthen us, may you sustain us, and may you impress upon our hearts the greatness of your character as you have forgiven us in Christ. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.